I've had a peculiar intellectual journey where uh, my pursuit has been very interdisciplinary. My PhD is in humanities and I've been dabbling with political science also. And the reason why I'm dabbling with political science these days is because I'm critically examining textbook discourse which is fed to us from sixth grade onwards. And there's a particular problem that I have recognized, which is not there only in the textbooks that you find in India, but textbooks that are around the world when it comes to the representation of India and Hinduism. This problem, as far as I am concerned, was recognized by Arun Shori in Eminent Historians when he spoke about the distortion of Indian history by the Marxists. And in my research, what I have found is that there's a father to Marx as well. And that father needs to be exposed, he needs to be brought into light. And I think when that father is exposed, we'll be able to identify the nexus which lies between colonial discourse and Marx's discourse. So without further ado, I'm going to talk about a gentleman by the name of James Mill who made a deep impact on India. In political science departments, I'm pretty much sure that you are taught the philosophy of utilitarianism and you are also taught about the liberal philosopher John Stuart Mill. In other words, you are taught about utilitarianism and you are taught about liberalism. But there was one individual who actually comes between Bentham and John Stuart Mill and he has made certain contributions and those contributions are not really spoken about and interestingly this individual is also the individual who wrote the first Hindu phobic discourse on India and this particular work was published in 1817 which goes by the name the history of British India. History of British India in, James, uh, in three volumes by written by James Mill. Just a little bit about James Mill. James Mill was born in 1773 in, in Scotland and uh, he went to University of Edinburgh where he did his masters in divinity. The idea of the people who were supporting his scholarship was to basically make him a preacher. But after he finished his masters in divinity, he was not able to find a job. And in 1802, he moved to London where he started a journalistic career. And he started writing in various journals and newspapers. By the time it was around 1806, he hit upon the idea of writing a history of British India. And it was in 1808 that he came in contact with Bentham and his exposure to utilitarianism happened. It took him 12 years to finish History of British India. Earlier he had thought that he would uh, take about 3-4 years to write the work. But I think because of his connection with Bentham, the work got protracted and around 
1815, he was also co contacted by the editor of Encyclopedia Britannica, who invited him to write some articles for the supplement to Encyclopedia uh, Britannica. And interestingly, the writings that you find in history of British India when it comes to the representation of Hindus and Hinduism, they have a reciprocal relationship between, uh, or rather, the reciprocal relationship with the political writings that he did for England. And as many of you would be aware here, there were some profound political and social reforms that took place in 1832, which took Britain and a good part of uh, Europe on the path of democracy. And it was largely because of the work of James Mill that these reforms happened. And the reason why I'm saying this is because Bentham was very philosophical. He was very sage-like. He did not have political acumen. So while he was writing uh, stuff, and these were pretty uh, dense, James Mill was the individual who could actually simplify those ideas and, talk, and, and take those ideas to the masses. And of course, the Bentham had some other of, uh, disciples also, and, and James Mill was working on them with them. So in history of British India, what you need to do is to basically look at the seven chapters that he has written on Hindus and Hinduism. And even a cursory glance will make you realize that his sole agenda was to show Hindus and Hinduism in a very poor light. The words uncouth, savage, uncivilized, brute, and so on and so forth are found everywhere in those seven chapters. And as he was defining the Hindus, savage and uncivilized, there was one particular theme which runs through all these seven chapters, which is about Hindus being hierarchical and oppressive in as many ways as possible. So he begins the first chapter where he says that Hindus are uncivilized and, uh, and savage because they have no sense of history. And this narrative, interestingly, has not died down. In the second chapter, he begins to describe the social structure of the Hindus. And there also he talks about, or rather he links, you know, the hierarchical organization of the Hindu society with savagery and barbarism. In the third chapter, he begins to talk about the ideas of governance. And this is something, you know, which will be uh, very important for you. So what he says is that the Hindu form of governance has been hierarchical and oppressive right from the very beginning. It has been hierarchical and oppressive since antiquity. In the next chapter, he describes the Hindu laws and there he basically twists the Dharma Shastras and by doing that he engenders a particular kind of narrative which you still find. So 
you know, I won't go into all the details of the chapters that he has written, but what I'm trying to say is that genealogically, lot of misrepresentation that you find on Hindus and Hinduism can actually be found in the writings of James Mill. And why I'm saying that there's a, there's a reciprocal relationship between the political writings of James Mill for Britain and his writings on India is basically because of this. The data that he had, that data was coming from the British society. The British society of his times was extremely hierarchical and oppressive. There were a select few who were holding power and that power was basically held by monarchy and aristocracy. And monarchy and aristocracy were assisted by the clergy. So when this whole situation gets translated in Indian terms, what the clergy is, they become the Brahmins and the, the monarch become, uh, becomes the king and the aristocrats become the Kshatriyas. And, you know, I'm, I'm writing a, a book on this particular topic. I won't be able to go into the details. But the projections are quite massive. And the understanding that I have around this is that whatever he was trying to suppress within the British condition, that was projected onto the Indian society, onto the Hindu society. And that is how this narrative or this representation that was created. And that representation, interestingly, has not died down. So earlier I told you that History of British India was published in December of 1817. By the time it was 1819, James Mill got employed by the East India Company. By the time it was 1823, he was second in command as far as the hierarchy of East India Company uh, operating from its headquarters in London is concerned. By the time it was 1830, he became the chief individual at India House. So in a certain sense, you can say that he became the CEO of the East India Company. And history of British India, interestingly, became, became the blue book of all the organizational changes, organizational and governmental changes that have actually occurred in India. And that deconstruction or that critical examination of what happened in history in the transformation of the Indian situation hasn't really happened. And this is something that we really need to do as political scientists to engage in or engage with because the impact of this is going to be massive. If we will be able to expose this history, our society will be able to undergo decolonization, which incidentally and interestingly it has not undergone. We are talking about it, you know, there are murmurs, 
in, in, in different corners of India, but for the decolonization project, what is required is a very systematic approach. And at this point in time, as students of this particular field, we really need to engage in some original thinking and original research, which will manifest in writings, in academic writings, through which changes in discourse will happen. See, in terms of politics, these ideas, they can win us elections, but in order for the ideas to really percolate at the grassroots level, academic discourse will have to be engaged in, and this is where the scholars really need to, you know, pull up their sleeves and start working on things. So this was, you know, this was what really happened in the colonial period. Now, the ideas that James Mill wrote about, they were picked up by Hegel around 1823 or so. And I don't need to tell you that Hegel influenced Marx in a very, very systematic manner. You know, the, the Hegelian di dialectics basically forms the basis of, Marx, of Marx's dialectics. Now, Marx was also living in London from 1840 to 1860. And by then, the ideas that James Mill had generated, they had become part of the folklore. So I just want to read something to you from James Mill and you will see the connection that exists between Marxist thought and the million thought when it comes to representation or misrepresentation of the, of, of the Indian society or the Hindu society. On page 202 of uh, the History of British India, Volume 1, James Mill writes, Among the Hindus, according to the Asiatic model. Does that ring a bell? Among the Hindus, according to the Asiatic model, the government was monarchical and with the usual exception of religion and its ministers, absolute. So this absolutist form of governance, you know, this absolutist form of Hindu governance, which has been written about extensively by the Marxist historians in this country, owes its origin to the discourse by James Mill, which occurred in the earlier part of the 19th century. I have a few more minutes, and as I was telling you that, you know, that I'm, I'm engaging uh, in this discourse analysis quite systematically, and I'm going to take you to a few passages from this book. Many of you will be able to identify this. This is Our Past, Part 1, Textbook in History for Class 6 by NCRT. And I'm going to read out to you a few lines where this representation is not explicit, but it is running in between the lines. This is on page 
54. So this is from the chapter Kingdoms, Kings and Early Republic. And this is the first time that, you know, Indian monar uh, monarchy or Hindu monarchy is basically being described by, by NCRT history textbooks. The Ashwamedha or horse sacrifice was one such, was one such ritual. You know, on the surface, on the surface, you won't find things that are factually wrong, but there's something inserted in between the lines, and those are the things that we'll have to decode. A horse was let loose to wander freely, and it was guarded by Raja's men. If the horse wandered into the kingdoms of other Rajas and they stopped it, they had to fight. If they allowed the horse to pass, it meant that they accepted that the Raja who wanted to perform the sacrifice was stronger than them. These Rajas were then invited to the sacrifice, which was performed by specific, specifically trained priests who were rewarded with gifts. The Raja who organized the sacrifice was recognized as being very powerful and all those who came brought gifts to them. You know, this is, this is the beginning of the narrative. And what is, you know, what is the interpretation which is being given to us over here? The interpretation is that the Raja, the Indian monarch or the Hindu monarch, was an individual who was power-hungry, who was being assisted by the Brahmins. The governance was hierarchical and oppressive, which was being conducted by the Rajas and the Brahmins. And as I discussed earlier, this was not what our Rajas were doing, if you go into the Dharmashastras. The diktat or the dictum in, in Arthashastra is very clear. The Raja has to be dharmic. The Raja was the representative of Dharma. And in all the coins that you have found, you know, particularly of the, of the Gupta period, you would find Raja and Rani sitting under a canopy, sitting under a chhatra. What did that chhatra denote? That was the, that was the chhatra of Dharma. There is a constant invocation on the part of the Raja to be dharmic and be dharmic in as many ways as possible. But what is it that you get here? An individual, Raja is an individual who is power hungry and is assisted by Brahmins who are gift hungry. And this, this narrative, as I told you, you know, hasn't, hasn't really uh, disappeared. What is important to note here is that this narrative is being read by six great children whose minds are very, very delicate. This narrative is basically going into their, in, into their unconscious. It is not going into their conscious mind. And because it is not going into their conscious mind, deconstructing this narrative will actually become very, very difficult later. It begins to form the part of the collective unconscious of our community, of our society. Let me, let me proceed a little further. The Raja was a central figure in these rituals. He often had a special seat, a throne, or a tiger skin. His charioteer, 
who was his companion in the battlefield and witnessed his exploits, chanted the tales of his glory. Raja is basically a megalomaniac. That's, you know, that's who he is. Raja is not Dharmi. His relatives, especially his wives and sons, had to perform a variety of minor rituals. The other Rajas were simply spectators who had to sit and watch the performance of the sacrifice. Once again, the priests, you know, come into the picture. Priests performed the rituals, including the sprinkling of sacred water on the, on the king. The ordinary people, the Vish or Vaishya, also brought gifts. So the oppression of the common people is inserted in here. The ordinary people, the Vish or Vaishya, also brought gifts. However, some people, such as those who were regarded as Shudras by the priests, were excluded from many rituals. This is not true. This is not true. In ancient India, all the four Varnas participated in many of the rituals that occurred, you know, for the king or for the kingdom. There's one more example, Professor Dalakya, that I will take and then I will close. This is on page 58. And, you know, this, this narrative of hierarchy and oppression, which I told you, was first formulated by James Mill, begins to get even deeper. Forts were probably built because people were afraid of attacks from other kings and needed protection. It was also likely that some rulers wanted to show how rich and powerful they were by building large, tall, and impressive walls around their cities. Factually, nothing wrong with this. Also in this way, the land and the people inside the fortified area could be controlled more easily by the king. I'm reading this again. Also in this way, the land and the people living inside the fortified area could be controlled more easily by the, by the king. Once again, the king here is not performing dharma. King is engaged in controlling people. He is the oppressive figure. This narrative gets regurgitated once again. Building such huge walls required a great deal of planning. Once again, no problem with this. Thousands, if not lakhs of bricks or stones had to be prepared. This in turn meant enormous labor provided possibly by thousands of men, women and children and resources had to be found for all this. So the Raja, you know, as he was building these walls, you know, was engaged in the practice of oppressing the people and, and this oppression was further conducted by the laving of taxes and that is what is spoken about here. The new Rajas now began maintaining armies. Soldiers were paid regular salaries and maintained by the king throughout the year. Some payments were probably made, uh, made using punch-marked coins. And then, you know, and then he begins to talk about the, tax, the taxes. So, you know, once again, the, the idea that we are getting is that the Raja was not involved in the creation of welfare state. The Raja was not 
collecting taxes because he you know i mean this is this is a wrong interpretation because we have had many ranis also so we should basically be talking about rulers uh, rulers were interested in the welfare of the people this idea never comes through i can at random in this particular book pick up stanzas and show the connections you know with the writings of james mill what i'm trying to say here is that the the matter has gone to a very nuanced and subtle level and in order to identify the subtleties in these narratives the discourse which was built on us in the 19th century will have to be very systematically explored and that is the reason i like to say this that there is an industry waiting to unfold are we willing to fight the gauntlet are we willing to pick it up and this is where we will become original in our writings original in our research and we will engage in something which is truly going to transform the society you know i'm not saying that this is true about this department but i see many departments in uh, in india who are just regurgitating the thoughts that were written some 200 years ago and those thoughts yes they are creating a transformation uh, within the indian society but those thoughts are creating a tremendous amount of disharmony as well and in order to stem that dis- disharmony we will need to remove the distortions that happened in history at one point in time and based on that we will need to give ourselves the correct history so that we are able to make interventions in the society which will be harmonious i don't claim that you know that everything was hunky dory with the hindu society in the past i'm certainly not of the opinion but what i'm saying is that because of these fabrications and uh, the different fault lines that have been deliberately created in the society in our society there's a lot of chaos and in order in order to get past that chaos and really engage in development which is harmonious we will have to deconstruct the narrative quite systematically so that those are the things that i have to say professor darakya thank you very much thank you professor kundan singh it was a very focused well researched presentation and personally for me this invisible connection between james mill and karl marx and its impact on colonial history and colonial interpretation of india uh, was indeed very interesting which requires further cogitation and further research on our part floor is now open for questions only clarificatory or informational questions we will try to avoid our own personal comments looking at the positive of time 
I will request some volunteer kindly to get the mic and pass it on to yes okay yes professor sanjeev okay good morning uh, professor neeraj gupta and professor kundan singh and professor dolakia wonderful two fascinating presentations on uh, colonial transition 18th and 19th century and since professor dolakia has put a dictat so i'll put it in the frame of a question what i want to ask so professor gupta basically when we talk in terms of sati do we really have arrived at a time when we actually need to think about indian renaissance itself that itself is a very problematic thing we have been celebrating indian renaissance for last 70 years saying that okay 19th century was indian renaissance but i completely disagree with that we never needed a renaissance of what raja ram mohan rai we celebrate so critically thinking it was raja ram mohan rai rather than the britishers who actually demonized sati so this is what i want to say and for a correct perspective on sati we actually need to look at what bankim chandra actually uh, says where hinduism never needs reform from outside sanatan dharma has existed for thousands of years and it has been evolving on its own through civilizational inventions and innovations so what is your thoughts on that and professor kundan singh wonderful but i would like to place another father on james mill how do you think warren hastings and william jones actually you know their own interventions in understanding indian society and their own confusions in dividing indian society based on invented traditions ultimately led james mill to think in terms how in terms of how to govern india and this whole idea of bringing in the idea of metropolitan governance based on the victorian morality which was actually evolving in early uh, 19th century britain how did it actually influence so orientalism and victorianism of course you have spoken about victorianism but it has to be mixed with orientalism that is what i want to say thank you thank you next question this the presenters will respond to all questions at the end yes there's one person there in the last yeah thank you both yeah. the speakers for your uh, really passionate and enlightening uh, knowledge my question is to professor kundan singh i had a query in this mind uh, in my mind whether what james mill wrote in the three volumes did get an entry into the schools and colleges of the contemporary time of london and england and it did impact the people over there and then it proliferated to india i just wanted to know about that so my name is parama i had two questions the first question was about methodology since uh, asiatic society and asiatic research was very rightfully questioned the dharmashastra on the basis of which you've drawn your evidence counter evidence was it written democratically by the people and if not then should we also take a critical view of the powers that wrote the dharma shastra and what might be their intentions of writing it and secondly about the questions of sati we see in the iran eran inscriptions of madhya pradesh and 510 gupta period epitaphs that were created for the women who were satied 
so while obviously it wasn't a very wide scale practice it was still uh, through our historical evidence we can see that it was still practiced so does recognizing some of these negatives in our own culture make our culture in any form smaller or uh, should we recognize these issues that did come up in order to create a better society because past is obviously not blame free the third question sorry i have is about the transmission of knowledge if there was 100% literacy and gurukuls were not based on caste system then how come this wealth of knowledge get eradicated so easily especially of a country that had such great innovations great knowledge equality that you have mentioned that existed then how is it so easy to eradicate an entire civilization and have no traces of it left behind okay important questions next yes good morning i have a clarification with kuddan sir sir was the uh, chhatra of uh, dharma dharma only applicable to the quote unquote hindu rulers or also to those who got themselves into vaishnavite tradition or uh, shiva tradition like kanishka so was it applicable for their rule also or was it for only the quote unquote hindu rulers okay thank you and now i give the floor to professor nirja first to respond to the questions and comments okay yes one last question thank you i'm dr nishant professor singh although i agree with uh, most of what you said in the last part uh, there seems to be a discomfort with the idea of uh, disharmony and chaos now don't you think it is because of this fear of discomfort and disharmony and chaos that this continuity between james mill to marx to what you read in the anxiety books still exists because we are so discomforted with the idea of disharmony and chaos is chaos always wrong or it is important to build some kind of chaos to bring about social transformation thank you quick answers because we are at paucity of time so first addressing the question on sati uh, combining both the queries yes there are some inscriptions written not only in madhya pradesh but uh, in some other uh, inscriptions also we do find narrative of sati but was it uh, prevalent in 19th century when the reforms were taken up or they lied as inscriptions and there might be some of the incidents which were did the mahima mandan and there how they found the places in inscriptions we are very sure when we go to the gazetteers of the collectors when we go to the records of not only indian scholars but also of the british scholars that sati was not performed as a pratha i am very much on page with professor uh, who actually raised the question first that yes many of the reforms were the personal ambition and passion which were created in the society not much needed not only sati pratha but there were vidwa viva also the kashi vrindavan and mathura came after the so called reforms there were other uh, you know popular uh, methods within the families who would take care of the widows like uh, in punjab we have chadar dalna and in, in uh, other uh, societies also we do have so these actually were the attempts to show how regressive is the society and these reforms are much needed so i would uh, claim uh, again that there was no sati pratha there might be some incidents but incidents can't be called pratha and you need a reform to correct over that the other part uh, the girl uh, asked a very valid questions that 
do we really have that high level of literacy yes it is not only a hearsay you go to the gazetteer of travancore go to the gazetteer of vadodara go to the gazetteer of thiruvananthapuram shrirangapatnam Kashmir, Bengal, you find in the collectorate not only the number of Gurukuls but also the breakup of the caste wise students and highest caste which was studying, I am just trying to find out the percentage, I will give you immediately if I find out, were of the Shudra Jati. So it was not caste ridden only, the castes were given ample you know, a space to come and study and in Travancore, I have the figures of Travancore, 1870, 12, uh, 1812, sorry, the Gazetteer uh, documentation is there. So, it was not caste driven, Guru were free to accept their students as per the societies, but there were Charan Parampara, there were also other sorts of uh, Jati who were having their own Gurukuls. So we have the records of these Gurukuls who were enrolling these students and we can even now go and find out from the um, gazetteers. So it is there. Thank you. So um, with respect to the first question uh, regarding William Jones and James Mill, I have developed over a period of time, you know, some theorem, theorems and binaries. I cannot go into those at this point in time, but my study of the Western civilization makes it very clear to me that the Western thought operates in binaries. So at any given moment, you know, you will have two uh, different thoughts that are opposed to each other. So when it comes to the writings that are considered Orientalists, you know, you had two streams in operation. One can be called Romanticist and the other can be called Anglicist. Now, in terms of Romanticist writings on India, this is something which you will find across the board. Whatever binary halves that the thinkers privileged, they were projecting on the Indian situation. However, with the Anglicists, who are also called the Orientalists at this point in time, all the binary halves in their thinking that they were trying to suppress, they were projecting on the Indian situation. So in terms of this binary between hierarchy and equality, you know, with which James Mill was certainly involved, what he was doing was that he was trying to suppress hierarchy. He begins, he begins that movement and that movement actually finds full blossom in the writings of Karl Marx, where he privileges the notions of uh, egalitarianism and equality to the fullest. But in terms of James Mill, James Mill, whereas he's attacking hierarchy, you know, He's talking about representative gov uh, governance, which basically took the form of democracy in Britain. So there is a certain nuance between the writings of people who can be considered romantic in their aspirations and writers who can be considered orientalist or anglicist. And there is a, there's a relationship 
of binary opposition between the two. So James Mill, what he did was that in many ways he inverted, he inverted the discourse of William Jones. He turned it upside down, which is very similar to what you find between the writings of Plato and Aristotle. Aristotle flipped the writings of, Pla of Plato upside down. And this tradition or this parampara has been going on in the Western civilization for a very long period of time. And this is the relationship that actually exists between William Jones and James Mill as far as you know, my understanding of the situation is concerned. Now, coming to uh, Professor Nina Gupta, you know, history of, history of British India made a deep impact in the British society. In 1805, East India Company had created a college by the name of Hellebury College for training East India officials who were going to operate in India. And history of British India became the required writing or the required reading for the trainees over there. So these uh, rulers who were coming to India, they already had a preconceived notion of India which had been prepared for them by the discourse which was present in history of British India from James Mill. Now, the utilitarians, you know, or the radicals as they call themselves, they also put together University of London in 1825. So, this narrative became part of the English educational system and, and and through that you know it basically proliferated around the world so history of India you know as far as I'm concerned is no mean text it has you know it it continues to have impact on representation of India even today even as we speak now let me come to the question you know which was uh, raised by one of the people in the audience you know, this is with regards to the Dharma Shastra. See, I never, I never said that Dharma Shastra is right. All that I said was that Dharma Shastra has been distorted in the writings of James Mill. So, as a trained psychologist, you know, what I heard in your question was basically projections. You projected a lot. You know, you were imputing certain things onto me which I never said, you know, I didn't, I'm, I was not here to give you a brief on Dharma Shastra, whether I agree with the contentions of Dharma Shastra or not. All that I was saying was that James Mill selectively used Manu's Dharma Shastra and he distorted it. And as far as that contention is concerned, you know, I will be able to show it, show it to you very clearly if you ask me for evidence. There were a couple of more questions, you know, I, uh, I think you were talking about chaos and uh, you were talking about the reconstruction through chaos. Well, you know, that's a philosophical question, you know, for that we'll have to get into Hindu cosmology and so on and so forth and how we look at chaos. But what I'm certainly claiming here is that lot, lot of problems that we are encountering in the society particularly with respect to uh, the reality of our society, were concocted, to be, were, were concocted to begin with. 
you know they there's a profound relationship between the generation of a discourse and the changes that happen on ground based on the discourse you know from from the vedantic perspective i would say that there is there is a connection between manomay kosha and annamay kosha so whatever happens you know at the level of mind at some point in time begins to have an impact in the terrestrial realm you know in the physical situation what i'm trying to say here is and that's a you know i mean these are things that i i teach in courses you know it's like it's not even in one course you know i teach these things in in in, in courses the narrative that got created by james mill you know began to have an impact on our society and this impact was made very very systematically and this impact can actually be traced if we go back to a uh, history you know i'm not i'm not going to talk about that piece of work you know in 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 my publications that are going to come out in the next few months but i definitely intend to take this up in my future writings and as i said the the, the reason why i have taken this up is because you know i really want i'm i'm interested in the transformation of indian society and i'm seeing you know i'm seeing the the negative consequences of that narrative in in the current situation so thank you thank you uh, before that professor sangeet wants to make some a small uh, just a small observation that uh, the history of india by james mill in fact came uh, the part of celebi for the ics officers in their training who used to be there and it continued even after independence strangely ye even after independence it was taught to the ics officers for it was taught, it was taught for decades so this is a small observation because the, it it has impacted a lot second observation that if you look at the german orientalist and the british orientalist you will be finding a sea of difference as far as understanding of ideas are concerned james mill what was the source for for james mill about writing india it were the missionaries and the documents that were supplied to him from india there was no any field work right so uh, that connection also has to be taken into account and if you right you rightly said so when you look at hegel's understanding of india it looks completely you know it looks that prima facie it it, it is visible that uh, it's it has been highly distorted and it was a very poor understanding of india that simple very small comment this province i have chosen because it has the highest brahmanical density as per the gazetteers year 1812 provinces changalpet of chennai province there were 512 schools owned by the gurus and the breakup of jati is brahmins 688 kshatriya 234 vaishyas 738 and shudras 4800 students so such uh, examples would also be available and if you want to learn in detail about this particular topic you know i would recommend the writings of dharampal 
in the speaking tree. You know, this, this, this matter has been beautifully analyzed by him. <laughs>